Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. We've had our appetizer, and so now we're going to the main meal, which is Hebrews twelve eight through eleven. <clears throat> it's the final section uh, on God's discipline of His children, and we looked at five through seven last week. Uh, we are clearly told that God will. Uh, we are clearly told that every child of God will be disciplined, without exception. Um, For a person confessing to be a child of God and not experiencing discipline, God's discipline, God clearly tells us that individual is not one of his children. Now, we'll see that in verse 8 very clearly. <clears throat> the scripture does give us identifying characteristics of God's children, which helps to differentiate between God and Satan's children. Uh, spiritually speaking, there are only two families in the world, the family of God and the family of Satan. And there are characteristic of God's children that will set that individual, that person apart as a child of God. You know, when you think, when, you, when your child is born to you and uh, your spouse, that child has the, uh, the characteristics of mom and dad. Uh, maybe some from mom, some from dad, whatever the case might be. It's, uh, uh, it's in the genes and passed down. Well, <clears throat> when we are birthed into God's family, Okay, I'm going to throw out a question here. No, I shouldn't do this, because then we'll have to digress. I'm going to do it anyway. Because we've covered it. Are we birthed into God's family, adopted into God's family, or both birthed and adopted into God's family? Pardon? Pardon? Good for you, Tom. We're not adopted into God's family. We are birthed into God's family. Okay, good. He gave the right answer. I don't have to go any further in that than, than what he said. But that's, that's the correct answer. <coughs> adoption have to, has to do with a son being placed. And adoption has to do with God's children, those who have been birthed into his family, being placed one day in heaven. That's adoption. It's not the Western world concept of adoption, where, hey, we want to adopt a a child, and so we go pick out this child, this Korean child, or black child, or or white child, or whatever the child, and we we go to the, uh, and say, hey, we want want this child to be part of our family, and you adopt it. 
Um, that's not adoption in the Bible. Um, adoption in the Bible is son placed, and it's the placement of all of God's children, those who have been born into God's family, ultimately placed into heaven one day. Romans 8, among other verses. Anyway, I knew I shouldn't have gone down there. But anyway, uh, so one of these characteristics is a lack of discipline. But there are other characteristics. In other words, if somebody claims to be a Christian, and, and in, the, in the vernacular that we're going to talk about tonight, I'm going to equate, equate Christian with child of God. No, that's not obviously always the case. Uh, but biblically, if you're a follower of the Messiah, you first have become a child of God, and you're following him. So I'm going to take it, at least in the broad sense, of those who claim to be Christians, if they have no discipline in their life, it sets them apart as an unbeliever, not being in God's family. And this portion that we're looking at tonight on discipline will ultimately close with an exhortation to accept discipline, respond properly to discipline, and understand it as beneficial for you. Now, look at verse 8 of Hebrews 12. But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are you bastards and not sons. Now, some of the other translations probably have the word illegitimate, I would presume. Maybe you have that in your translation. Same thing, but you're not sons. So, so let me ask you this. Uh, I, I've got three questions down here under this verse. How many of his sons, or, or perhaps I should have used the word children, uh, how many of his children does God chastise? All. There shouldn't be any question on that. Uh, if you be without chastisement, whereof all of God's children are partakers. So God chastises, God disciplines every single one of his children. If someone has no chastisement when they are living in sin, what does this tell us about this person? Yeah, the part of the, the, the family of the devil. Or putting it in, in, uh, in an, I guess, in a negative sense, they're not God's children. And because there's only two families, spiritually speaking, then they're Satan's children. So if someone is living in sin and there is no chastisement taking place in that life, that tells us that person is not a child of God, regardless of what they tell you verbally. Third question. If you are not God's son, whose son are you? Satan's. Now, as we move on in this, um, we need to be careful um, because we can identify as, as, as best as humanly possible. We can't read a heart. But God gives us identifying characteristics of, of his children, one of them being discipline in the life. Uh, but we've got to be very careful and move slowly 
Uh, think of, for example, David. Uh, we looked at David last week, if you remember, and his sin uh, with Bathsheba, having Uriah murdered, and uh, we, we looked at Psalm 32, and outwardly, David was living high off, no, I don't want to use that terminology, high off the locks. High on the lamb. There you go. Sorry, Buzz. But anyway, um, he was sitting on the throne. He's ruling over the people. He's being waiting on because he's the king. But inwardly, Psalm 32, what was happening to David? His bones waxed old all the day long. And the hand of God was heavy upon him, and it was roaring his bones. He, he, was, he was a dead man walking, if you can put it in, maybe in that vernacular. Externally, everything looked fine. But internally, he was a mess. He was under conviction. He was not getting any real rest and peace and sleep whatsoever. Now, how long did that period of discipline go on in David's life? Nine months. Because when did the discipline start? What was the first sin? Bathsheba and the sexual sin. Now, he didn't know at the time that she was pregnant, but he got her pregnant. But he also then, after that, sent her husband to the front of the lines, and he was, uh, he was a dead man walking. I mean, he was obviously going to be killed. David knew that, and he was. So now you're complicit in your sin with murder. But from that, from that sin to when uh, Nathan came to him uh, and gave him that, um, uh, that parable of, of, the, of the rich man with all these sheep and this uh, poor man with had one little ewe lamb, and uh, you remember that, and you know, they killed the poor man's one little ewe lamb, and David was incensed and said he should pay fourfold, uh, and then Nathan pointed his finger at him and said, you're that man, and uh, he, he said, and David repented, remember? Festus said, and Nathan said, you will not die. From point A to that point was nine months. Not a long time. So if somebody is living in sin, I mean, strong sin, I mean, like sexual sin, for three years, five, you know, I, I've met people, especially, especially moms. I love you moms. You know, I really do. But sometimes you look at your children through, through the lens of the heart and not through the lens of Scripture. My little girl accepted the Lord when she was five. And she went to Sunday school and, and she memorized verses and she'd come home and sing the songs about Jesus to me. And, and yeah, I know, ever since she got out of the house, she's been living like... Uh, uh, like um, Rahab without, you know, and, uh, you know, the harlot. And, you know, she's been living in sin. But I know she's saved because when she was five, she made this, you know, have you met that type? Maybe you're that type of mom. Um, because you're looking, you want your child to be, I understand that. You want your child to be saved. But, but let's not fool ourselves by looking at things through our emotion. Let's look at things through the word of God. And God gives us characteristics, identifying characteristics of his children 
that can help us. And we're not perfect, and, and so we can make mistakes. But when there's uh, sin in the life of an individual that goes on for an extended period of time, certainly years, I would deal with that person as an unsaved person. And, and through the years, I've had to talk to people and, uh, and, and deal and say, you know, and I've, always, and I've told you this before. When I witness to people, I give everybody the benefit of the doubt. I always consider them lost. So, hey, you know, it's better that I offend them here and see them in heaven than they feel good because, oh, you're a Christian, that's great. And I get up to heaven and say, where's John? I thought, you know, I, you know well, and John at the great white throne, John, John looks at me and says, why didn't you tell me? You know, anyway, I give people the benefit of the doubt. So, now I know all of y'all are saved. I hope. So, what, what, is there a way to differentiate between a child of God and a child of Satan? It, the very clear answer is yes. A, a, and the first way, of, for, for no other reason than we are in this portion of Scripture here, that we have, verse 8 of Romans cha Hebrews chapter 12, is that every child of God will be disciplined. If there is no discipline in the life of a person who is living in sin, that individual is not a child of God. That's so clear from verse 8. Uh, you, you, you can't, you shouldn't deny it. Now, the characteristics of, child, uh, of the child of God, and 1 John goes into a lot of this. Uh, the characteristics are summed up, are summarized uh, in 1 John 2.29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him, him being the Lord, him being God. So righteousness and doing righteousness, you're born of him. Now, there are a lot of religious people that do good things and they're not children of God. So it goes a lot deeper than just good acts. So this is just kind of a summary uh, here. But in 1 John chapter 3, we have a very clear delineation of how we can determine who is a child of God and who is a child of Satan. In um, 1 John 3.10, in the very first, first part of this verse, um, it says this, In this, the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Now, manifest means what? Made known, revealed. So in this is revealed or made known or manifest the children of God and the children of the devil. So this will put you on one side of the line or the other side of the line. Now, in this are the previous nine verses. In what is taught in the previous nine verses. So, um, turn with me, because I guess I didn't put down these verses here. Turn, turn, open your Bible to 1 John chapter 3.
the first characteristic of, of one of God's children is that the world doesn't understand you. Look at verse 1 of 1 John chapter 3. And we looked at verse 10, the first part of verse 10, uh, earlier in this, the children of God are manifest and the children of, is, uh, of the devil. But look at verse 1. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God, the children of God. That should make us pause and just have a hallelujah chorus type of moment. We really should. You know, what manner of love has God bestowed upon us? You know, I, w I was saved at a, at, a, at a later age in life, relatively speaking, 27. You know, I, I know Cheryl was saved when she was like five or six. Um, and and I, I am sure that the, uh, the life that went on in my mind and my heart and my appreciation was probably much more grateful than what a five-year-old would, would, would express. Um, I was blown away uh, that I was a child of God, uh, that I had been walking in darkness for, for, for a number of years, and I had come to the light, and, and that I'm actually a child. I, I, I walked around, I'm a child of God. Hey, hey, I'm a child of God. You know, you know and they, they look at me, you're crazy. What are you, you know, all the people in the white paddy wagon, and you know. I'm a child of God. That's amazing. That, 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 that the creator of the universe is my Abba, my father. That's what this verse, this portion is saying. What, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should call, be, call God's children. That is amazing. That is mind-boggling. But then it says this. Therefore, because of that, because we're God's children, the world knows us not because it knew him not. How did the world respond to Jesus? Killed him. They crucified him. They spit on him. They mocked him. They called him a devil. The world won't accept his children either. The world doesn't understand us. The world knows us not because it knew him not. See, we have the characteristics of our Heavenly Father. And that's inbred. But when you have a birth child, uh, that child gets the characteristics of its parents. It's inbred. It's, it's intrinsic. Um, it's uh, in their nature, if you will. Um, same when we become a child of God. We get the divine spirit. We get... Uh, God's spirit in us. We get this miraculous change. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Um, and, and when that happens, the world doesn't recognize us. <clears throat> um, they don't understand us. I, I quoted 2 Corinthians 5.17. What ends up happening in our life, there's different thoughts, there's different attitudes, there's different desires that take place. This is supernatural. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You know, w w when I see somebody who professes the Lord and says he's saved, but, uh, but his joy is hanging around with the wrong crowd, as it were, if you want to use that language. Uh, he hangs out with, with unsaved people, in the, and he's comfortable with unsaved people, and he's not too crazy. You know, maybe every 
other week I'll go to church and say hello to the Christians there. Uh, but he's more comfortable hanging out with unsafe people and running with them. That puts a big red question mark flag in my mind about that person. There should be this differentiation. That's what it's saying. Uh, if you're a child of God, the world doesn't know you, doesn't understand you because you have been changed. You are like Jesus. Uh, to whatever degree you're like Jesus, you have been changed, and there should be this separation that naturally comes, that you just don't desire to hang around with them. You know, I, I, being saved at 27, it was, it was certainly in my life, uh, and those of us who have been saved at a later age, probably more um, <clears throat> uh, characteristic of, of what happened than somebody saved at an earlier age. But I had, a, I had a major transformation in my life. I became a child of God. <clears throat> and uh, I, I think I told you this story. You know, right after I, I, was, I, was, I, I was on a path to become a professional bowler. I was averaging in the one, uh, 190s um, and improving by about eight pins a year. Uh, but then I got saved. And uh, I only bowled in scratch leagues. And uh, so this one scratch league during the summer, I was saved in, in June and I was the treasurer. And so at the end of the league, you always give out the money. Uh, and then you bowl the other bowlers. You know, sometimes the pots. And this goes back um, to the 70s. And the pots could be three, four, five hundred dollars um, And so it's a lot of money. Well, <clears throat> I had gotten saved. And, and, and uh, I didn't want to bowl. By what I wanted to do was talk about Jesus. But I had to hand out the money to these guys. Because I was the treasurer. You know, those who got first place got more money and, and that type of thing. We didn't get trophies. We got money. That's this was about. And I said, I said, before I hand out this money, I, I t I'm, I'm giving up bowling. I want to tell you why. So, and I started teaching, telling them about Jesus. I didn't know a lot. I just tell them what happened in my life. And this one guy who was about 230, muscle upon muscle, he, he's, he got up, he started, he says, I go to church on Sunday to hear this. And he had a bear can in his hand, and he, and he squeezed it, and bear started going out everywhere. And he said, if you don't hand out that money, you're going to be like this bear can. I said, sit down. You'll get your money soon enough. He sat down, and I didn't end up like the bear can, thankfully. Well, he didn't understand me. And we had bowled before, we had laughed and drank beer together, and, yeah, and, and you know, he didn't understand me. He went to church. He didn't understand me. So I, I, you should question people who say they're a believer but like to hang around with the unsaved crowd. The first characteristic of a child of God, the world will not understand us. There will be a differentiation, uh, a separation. Ephesians 5, 8, and 10. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are you light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable on the Lord. We were darkness, now we're light. Walk as that way. You have been changed. So the, the first characteristic is this separation from the world. The world doesn't understand us. Um, and they, they, it just doesn't make any sense to them. The second is longing or looking for the return of Jesus. Look at verses 2 and 3. 
Beloved, now are we the sons of God. We are the sons of God. We are the children of God. It does not yet appear what, shall we be, what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Once you're saved, you know Jesus is returning. You don't have to be taught about the second coming. You may not know all the details that he's returning. You may not understand anything about the rapture. You may not understand anything about his kingdom on earth and the millennial kingdom. But once you are saved, you know in your heart, in your spirit, in your being, Jesus is returning. Look at it again. We are the sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be. I mean, right now, you know, we may not be what we should be. But we know. What do we know? That when he shall appear, whenever that might be, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There is that understanding that Jesus is returning for us. <clears throat> you don't have to go to college. You don't have to uh, go to a Bible study, Bible college, to be taught that. You know that in your heart. The Holy Spirit teaches you that. In, in Titus chapter 2 and verses 11 and 13, for the grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. That salvation has been brought to all people who have been saved, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. The grace of God that has appeared to all people who have put their trust in Jesus, and look for the appearance of Jesus. Look for the return of Jesus. Verse 3 of 1 John, chapter 3. And every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. What is that hope in them? The return of Jesus. And every man that has this hope in him. Who are those people that have the hope of the return of Jesus? Believers. How many believers? All believers. If you ever run across or hear somebody who claims to be a believer, claims to be a Christian, but says, I don't believe Jesus is coming back. I just think that's a misunderstanding of what he taught. I don't believe that's the case. You don't mark that down, person down as a child of Satan, not as a child of God. <laughs> well, that's, that's the fulfillment of prophecy, um, because in, in 2 Peter, back up just a little bit, <coughs> um, <coughs> in 
verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 3. Knowing this first, that there shall be scoffers in the last days, scoffers walking after their own lusts, and saying, verse 4, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. If I would have been that talk show, I guess it was a talk show call in talking, I would have I would said, Mister, I wouldn't call him brother because he's not saved. Uh, he doesn't claim to be a Christian. I'd say, you know, I am so glad that you brought this up. You are a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. And you prove to me that the Bible is true and Jesus is coming. And he's not going to know what you're talking about. So let me explain what I'm, and go to this verse and say, you're a scoffer. And the Bible said there'd be people like you and Jesus is tarried just so people like you can scoff that it can tell me that the Bible is the word of God true and Jesus is coming. <coughs> Thank you. He hangs up or whatever he does. So, um, Anyway, um, as believers, everyone has this hope in him, the hope of the return of Jesus. Uh, if, 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 you, if you have any doubt that Jesus is coming, maybe you, maybe you better um, uh, analyze your relationship with God. Are you a child of God? We don't know when. We don't know what decade. We don't know what, you know, we, we, you know, we know he is coming. So we're looking for the return of Jesus, every believer. You know, from the moment I was saved, I was hoping he was coming. I'm still, I, I, and when I use hope, it's not a hope in the sense of could be. It's a hope in the sense of he is coming. It's a sure thing. Uh, I, ho I hope he comes tonight. I know he's coming, may not be tonight, but that, you know, so we have this hope in us. Every believer has that hope in him. But then look at the end of verse 3 of chapter 3 of 1 John. Every man that had this hope in him, that's every believer then, every child of God then, purifies himself, even as he is pure. He would be the Lord. And so we purify ourselves. So the life of a believer is characterized then by an ongoing action of purification. Now, we'll look at this in a little bit more detail. Um, Donald Burdick, in his commentary on the letters of John the Apostle, says this. John's use of the present tense, he that had this hope in him, purifies himself even as he is pure. Present tense. John's use of the present tense, which continues throughout these nine verses, or three through nine, John's use of the present tense indicates that the hope of Christ's coming results in a continuing process of purification. That the cleansing is not automatic is apparent from the fact that the possessor of the hope purifies himself. In other words, this is not salvation. This is not when God cleanses you of your sin, which is an act of God. This is something, as you look at verse 3 again, every man that has this hope in him does what? Purifies himself. So it's, 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 the, it's the individual, it's the child of God, because every child of God has this hope in him, 
And it's the individual, the child of God, in the present tense, it's an ongoing process that we are constantly cleansing ourselves, purifying ourselves of our sin. This is not salvation, it's fellowship. In 1 John chapter 1, in verse 9, it puts it this way. And, and the first chapter of John is dealing with fellowship, that we might have fellowship. Oh, yeah, I got that verse down there. Go back to 1 John chapter 1, just to, to highlight a few verses. Um, Start at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So we're writing this unto you, child of God, that, that we horizontally might have fellowship. I want you to have fellowship with me, John is writing. I want all Christians to have fellowship horizontally, one with another, with me. But you need to understand something. My fellowship, our fellowship, we have been writing, the, the apostles, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So my fellowship is vertical. In other words, it's based on my walk with the Lord the father and his son is vertical so my entire life john is saying is given to pleasing the father and his son jesus christ and having fellowship with him now i want to have fellowship with you horizontally but if you want to have fellowship with me i'm not coming down to your level you've got to come up to my level and what's my level my level is fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And when you're having fellowship with the Father and the Son, then we can have fellowship together is what he's saying. So don't expect me, don't expect me to stoop. Don't expect me to come down there. You need to come up to where my fellowship is with God. Then he goes on, and these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. I, I'm telling you this because I want you to have fullness of joy. If you stay down here, you ain't going to have it. You're going to muddle through life. You're not going to have the joy that you want. And the only way that you're, you're going to get the joy that, that I want you to have, that God wants you to have, you've got to come up here. And then you can fellowship with us because we're fellowshipping with the Father and the Son. And that's where true joy is in the presence of God the Father and walking with Him and God the Son. So I'm not coming down to your level. I don't want to lose my joy. I want you to come up to my level Fellowship with God, the Father, and God. And then your joy can be full. Then he goes on. This then is the message which we have heard of him. And do you clear unto you that God is light and him is no darkness also. We, you know, God is light, no darkness in him. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie. Do not the truth. So you can say you know God, you can say you're a Christian, you can say you're a child of God. You can say you have fellowship with God, but words are cheap. 
Because if you walk in darkness, if you live a sinful lifestyle, and John says later in 1 John, if you, if you hang around with, with, with other people of darkness, unsaved people, and enjoy it, what's the problem? You're not a child of God. Or as it says in verse 6, you're lying. You're lying to yourself. You're not lying to God. I mean, maybe you're lying to God. God knows. You may be lying to the person next to you. You're lying, and the truth is not in you. You're not a child of God. But, verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. This is for fellowship. Walk in the light. It's not going that, that, not that you're going to be perfect, but that's why Jesus, the son, his blood will cleanse you from all sins. And then verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. We're all sinners. Even believers are still sinners, children of God. So if we confess our sins, verse 9, and this is the key verse, this is purifying ourselves. If we confess our sins, confess is literally to see yourself as God sees you, to agree with God. Hey, I've sinned against you. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is not salvation. This is fellowship. Fellowship first with God. And then when you have fellowship with God, then you will enjoy being with other people who have fellowship with God. And it's not for salvation because if we confess our sins. I was saved at 27. I have no idea how many sins I committed prior to 27. The only, the only thing I'm sure of, it wasn't as much as Bob's. But it was a whole bunch, sorry Bob. It was a whole bunch of sins. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sins. And if I had to remember every sin that I committed from the time I became a sinner, whatever age that was, until the age of 26, I'd never be saved. It could, so, you know, but, but, but so when we get saved, we confess that we're a sinner and we need a savior. Here, it's for fellowship. So when we do sin, confess your sin, purify yourself, Lord, forgive me, I agree, I shouldn't have done that, could be a bad thought, it could be a wrong action, whatever the case might be, forgive me, Lord, uh, and then you are purified and you are restored to fellowship with him. And verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, uh, well, let me turn the page, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So if we say we don't sin, you know, I, I have met... In the Pentecostal holiness movement, there are some who teach that they don't sin. They, they, reach, they reach the state of sinless perfection. I remember uh, there's this preacher in, in California. He wasn't from California. He came through, and, and somehow he bewitched, I can use that word, a uh, number of people in the congregation that we were attending that he was not a sinner. He, was, he had now reached the point in life that he was sinless, sinless perfection, and he no longer sinned. And he challenged these people to be like him, and they, were, they, were, they couldn't. They, they, they were sinning. This guy was of the devil. 
He said he did no sin. When God says you don't do sin, you make God out to be a liar. His word is not in him. He's not saved. We have to purify ourselves. Go back to 1 John chapter 3. It's a continual sense. So it's purifying ourselves as believers. When we sin, we confess our sin. Turn the page over. Um, then in verse 4 of 1 John chapter 3, uh, whosoever commits sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And here, and, and I, I guess I didn't put down verse 4 anywhere. I should have. But basically what it's saying, it's just telling us what sin is. Sin is breaking God's law. And God's law here, in the context here, would be the law of Christ, not the Mosaic law. We are not any longer under the Mosaic law. We're under the law of Christ. And thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not worship false gods, thou shalt honor thy mother. There's a whole bunch of commands. Um, sinning is breaking God's law. Every one of us breaks God's law. In verses 5 through 9, you have the next identifying characteristic of a child of God. We do not commit sin on a regular basis, practice, and get away with it. That's where discipline comes in. Look at verse 5. You know that he was manifest to take away our sins, and him is no sin. The purpose of Jesus' coming was to take away our sins. In him, Jesus, there is no sin, and he died to take away our sins. And once we become a child of God, uh, one day he will take away our sins. He takes away the penalty of our sins when? When we're saved, justification. But when will he take away all of our sins? Practically. Glorification. He had no sin. Then in verse 6, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Now, maybe in verse 5, I should have looked at, uh, at Titus 2, 11 and 12. I've got it down here, Ephesians 2, 10. Um, to take away sin is not the judicial forgiveness here, but the removal of acts of sin in the believer's life. Um, when we are saved, Titus 2, 11 and 12, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, that's speaking of those who have been saved, teaching us. And what does the grace of God teach us? That's the Spirit of God who indwells us. That denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. It's also teaching us to look for the coming of the Lord. But the Spirit of God teaches us you don't need a preacher. You don't need a Sunday school teacher. Uh, you have the indwelling Spirit of God that teaches you that. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God had before ordained that we should walk in them. We know we should live godly. We know we should live holy. We know that we should confess our sins if we're a child of God. And so a child of God does not sin and get away with it. Verse 6, whosoever abides in him, and those that abide in him are children of God. Once you're saved, you're in him. 
How many times uh, is the phrase in Christ used for believers in the Word of God? Many. I would say over 150 times. We're in Christ. We're in Christ. Uh, Romans, 1 John, so many passages that speak of this. Um, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. And this is why some of those people want to say sinless perfection. Because they say, well, if you sin, you don't know him, and you never know him. So I don't want to sin, so I've got to be perfect, so I have sinless perfection. And they're lying to themselves. Uh, in the Greek here, it's in the present continuous tense, is what it's saying. Uh, what sinneth not means is that one does not habitually practice a sin and get away with it. Over and over and over again. It's clear Christians can commit sin. Back in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 10, we looked at that. Commit sin is in the present tense and speaks of a linear, horizontal, ongoing action. A believer can't practice or habitually do sins and get away with it. Again, Donald Burdick says this. Since the present tense depicts linear action, John does not say that the Christian does not commit a single act of sin. That idea be, would be represented by the aorist tense. Instead, he declares, no one who is dwelling in him is continually sinning, habitually sinning, practicing a sin. The Expositor's Bible says this, those who continue to sin make it certain they have never had their eyes open spiritually to see him, nor have they ever known him. In verse 6, he stated that no one who lives in him can practice a life of sin. It won't be your habit. It won't be your life. It won't be your regular, ongoing style of living. A Christian cannot habitually commit a sin, practice and get away with it. Now, look at verse 7. Little children... Let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. So don't be deceived, he says. The righteousness indicated here is not one act, but a continued practice of righteousness. In the Greek, the article preceding righteousness speaks of a particular righteousness. In this case, Christ's righteousness, which is characteristic of the new birth. Just as children have some of the characteristics of their parents, so God's children will have his characteristics, righteousness. Is there any sin in Jesus? No. That's what it said earlier, right? Verse 5, in him is no sin. Verse 7, little children, don't let anybody deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous. We are going to live like Jesus. That is going to be the pattern of our life. That is going to be the habit of our life, of righteous living. You will change. You come from darkness to light. You are a new creation. All things pass away. All things become new. You are created unto good works, which God has before ordained them. Uh, the grace of God that appears to all men, all people who get saved, uh, teaching you to deny worldliness and ungodliness and that type of thing. 
by a child of God will live a life of righteousness. He will not live a life of sin. If you commit sin, you will be disciplined. Last week, we looked at the three steps of discipline. Conviction, chastisement, and if you continue on and get serious enough, casket, death. Verse 8. He that commits sin is of the devil. He who habitually practices a life of sin. That is the standard of your life. Sinfulness. Marks you out as a child of whom? Satan. The devil. He that commits sin is of the devil. Not one sin, but a habitual lifestyle. Habitual practice. For the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, came, revealed, that he might destroy the works of the devil. See, there's only one thing that unsaved people can do because they only have one father, spiritually speaking, Satan. And that's sin. Sometimes it's manifest in the sin of pride. Sometimes it's manifest in the sin of evil and stupidness, and cra- you know, like this transgender pregnant man who's not a man, but wants to think she's a man with female organ. Just crazy, just crazy. That, that's not a child of God. That's a child of Satan. Um, if you're, it, it, he, it, whosoever's born of God did not commit sin, practice habitually a lifestyle of sinful living. <laughs> For because his seed remains in him. That seed is God's seed. And he cannot continually practice sin because he is born of God. The New Testament commentary by Simon J. Kistemaker in verse 9 says this. In the Greek, the verbs express continued action, not a single occurrence. And that's all the way through this chapter. Therefore, by using the present tenses of the Greek verbs, John is saying that the believer cannot practice habitual sin. The thought being conveyed in 1 John 3, 9 is not that one born of God will never commit a sinful act. We will, 1 John 1, 8 and 10. But that he will not persist in sin. You will not continually live in that sinful state and get away with it. If you live in that sinful state as a child of God, what is God going to do to you? Chastisement you. Discipline. How many children of God are disciplined? All of them. If you live in a continual, perpetual, habitual state of sinfulness and there is no discipline in your life, not a child of God. doesn't matter what you say with your lips. doesn't matter how many days you go to church. You're not a child of God. Now, his seed that remains in him most likely refers to the Holy Spirit, who is associated with the new birth, John 3, 5, 8. And in 1 John 2, 27, <coughs> it speaks of the anointing that abides in you. The anointing is the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that produces character in the believer. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Galatians 5.22-23. And when we are saved, 
the Spirit of God comes to dwell in us, that seed will remain in us and convict us and teach us and guide us until one, the day of our redemption. So verse 9, hold on, let me see, where am I? Okay, now in verse 9, we're back to, to, um, uh, to Hebrews. And let me just sum up what we said. There will be discipline in the life of a child of God. And we can differentiate. Now, sometimes, and we differentiate regularly in life. If you witness to somebody, aren't you judging that person? Not that you're damning that person to eternity in hell. You're making a judgment that that person needs the Lord. Now, sometimes that, that, that judgment is very simple. George, Gerald, and Frank. We have determined that they're not children of God. They're atheists. They hate God. They want nothing to do with God very clear they're not children of God. That Somalian Muslim congresswoman is not a child of God. She's a Muslim. You can't be a practicing Muslim. You can't be a Muslim and be a child of God. So there are some very, very clear delineations. Now, there are those times when we look at somebody and say, you know, I'm, I'm really persuaded that that person is a child of God. Like I hope your pastor. I hope you look at him and say, you know, I really believe he's a child of God. But there's that, there's that foggy middle, as you were. Because from both ends, that you're pretty certain of that individual. They go back towards the middle. And whether it's at the ends, unsaved end or the, uh, you're pretty certain of uh, this person end, and, and you move back towards the middle, you get to that line where, you know, you, you, I'm just not sure. Sometimes that person, you know, seems to be saved, and, and sometimes I'm not sure. And that's where I'll always give the person the benefit of the doubt. I'll treat them as a lost person, be that as it may. But they're identifying characteristics. And discipline is one of them. If, if, a chi- if a person who claims to be a Christian, a child of God, is living in sin and has no discipline, they're not a child of God. I don't care what they say. I don't care how many times they've been to church. I don't care what their mom says. Well, when they were young, they did this and yada, 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 yada. I don't care. It's a present continuous action. Well, so verse 9 of... Hebrews chapter 12. Furthermore, he goes on. We have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. You know, if you've had your father discipline you, not beat you and abuse you, that's not discipline. But if you've had a father or mother who've disciplined you and corrected you, 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 you appreciate that. You may not appreciate it in, in the moment of the, uh, the spanking. But you ultimately appreciate it. And thank God for your mom and thank God for your dad because they were doing what you needed to be corrected. You gave them reverence. Shall we, much, shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of Spirits 
and live. And live here, I don't think it's spiritually. I think it's physically. Because what's the final step of discipline after chastisement that God does? Death. First John 5. Isn't it better to submit to your heavenly father and the discipline that you're going through and, and give him reverence that you don't have to get to that point of the sin unto death? Job, he was not being disciplined for sin. Job was going through a trial of faith. But in Job 5.17, he said, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects. Therefore, despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. Don't despise it. In Psalm 94.12, Blessed is the man whom thou chasteneth, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law. Joyful, blessed. You know, next time you're being spanked by God, instead of moaning, sing. Thank you, Lord. Aha, do it again. Well, maybe not do it again, but Lord, I'm blessed that you've corrected me because it's going to be better for me in the long run, you know. You know hopefully you're not being, you know, and, and we're, all, we're all rebellious, and hopefully the, the, the discipline ends at the conviction stage. When you have rebelled against God, you've done something wrong, can be a thought or an attitude or whatever, and you finally realize, and you, and you just say, and it doesn't have to be verbal, it can be in your heart, Lord, forgive me. You know, I was wrong in that. You don't want to go to the chastisement stage. That's a lot severer discipline. You certainly don't want to get to the last stage, the, dis, the death stage, the casket stage. So, so you're blessed. You know, if you're disciplined by God, it proves you're a child of God. What more would you want in this world than to be a child of God? There's nothing better. Discipline ultimately produces respect. It's true in the physical world. It's also true in the spiritual world. Then verse 10. For they verily for a few days chasten us after their own pleasure. See, sometimes parents, human frailty that we have, we do it for our pleasure. Maybe we've had a bad day. We're taking our... our, our our, our issues out on our child, that type of thing, and, and we're wrong. Uh, and sometimes for a few days, then we wake up and say, you know, I'm, right, I'm wrong. I shouldn't have done that and ask you, you know, forgiveness. But God, when he disciplines always, without exception, without error, disciplines us for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. God is perfect. He, will, he never makes a mistake in discipline. We can. Um, we're human. You know, I still, I still remember years ago, I don't remember the age, I was like six or seven, and, and my, I have a twin brother, and, and we, were, we were acting up, sinning. I don't even remember what it was. All I remember is I got blamed for it. My brother did it and I got the spanking. I remember that clear as day. I don't remember what it was. And I was upset. Because I got punished when I didn't do it. Now, there's a hundred other times when I deserved it and didn't get punished. So, you know, you, you look at the, you know, the, you know. But that one particular time, you know, and, and I, I didn't.
didn't do it. He did it. And my brother's sitting there. <laughs> you know, innocent as the, as, as the pure dri white driven snow. Yeah, right. Um, I, I always remember that, you know. Um, and, and my father was wrong in disciplining me. He didn't know better. He's human. And, and, and I, I don't remember even if he remember, found out who did it, right? You know, God never makes a mistake. God never disciplines us too much or too little. It's perfect, and it's for our benefit, for our profit. He's omniscient. He knows. It's always perfect. And it's that we might be partakers of his holiness. He wants us to be like him. He's called us to be holy. He's called us, and it can be in dress. Women especially are addressed, are, are addressed about dress. More so than men, uh, because men are, are, are seduced by the, uh, uh, by the eye gate. Um, and so women, be careful. Um, but it tells us in 1 Timothy 2, 9 and 10, 1 Peter chapter 3, the verses 3 and 4. Um, and, and by the way, in 1 Peter 3, 3 and 4, who, who's adorning women? Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair and of wearing of gold or of putting on of apparel. Now, I, I have heard of women who say, well, I can't wear any jewelry and I can't wear any makeup uh, because it says our adorning should not be the, the plating of the hair, the fixing of the hair, the wearing of gold, the putting on of, uh, of apparel, but it should be the hidden man of the heart, which is that which is not corruptible. And the ornament that God wants is seek meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God a great price. So they say, well, I, can't, I don't wear jewelry and I don't wear makeup and I don't fix up my hair. That's not what God wants me to do. Well, if that's the case, you shouldn't wear clothes either. That's what it says. Look what it says. Whose adorning, let it not be that of outward adorning of plating the hair of wearing, or of putting on apparel. So if you don't think God wants you to have gold jewelry or fixed up hair or that, and that's wrong, take off your clothes. No, I'm not telling you to take off your clothes. Don't get me wrong. But if you're going to be consistent in this verse, you should take off your clothes, ladies. Now, this is not you. I realize that. But there are Christian women out there, especially in the Pentecostal movement, that say we can't have jewelry and all of that. It's not what it's saying. Uh, you can wear jewelry. It, it, should be, it shouldn't be so uh, ostentatious to take away from your quiet heart and spirit. But what God is more interested in is, is your, 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 your heart, your spirit. And that type of thing. Uh, you're, we're going to be examples. Uh, music. We're going to have holiness in music. Uh, Ephesians 5.19. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Uh, this, this came out uh, just a couple of days ago. So I thought I'd put it in about, about music. Uh, this comes from Olive Tree Ministries. And there was a forum on music. And I've uh, excerpted some of what they said. Here's what they wrote in this, in this Olive Tree Ministries email. Today's music is once again the product of the church growth movement. This is one way you grow a church. Lights, smoke, sound, and worshiptainment. Church, grow, church growth is a part of seminary training just as much as theology. As a result, when the entertainment angle goes too far, 
Church can seem like a performance at a local nightclub. Is this how a church prepares the people for preaching from the word of God? And I've mentioned, I don't have the quote now. I've read it here before. Um, Miss Manners, remember Miss Manners and her column? And years ago, she wrote a column about clapping in church. And she said, why do Christians clap in church? You're not singing for applause. You're singing for the Lord. And it's worship. You shouldn't clap for children. You shouldn't clap, clap for the singers. You should praise the Lord and say amen, but you shouldn't clap. That's a worldly thing. And she was right on. I don't know if she's a believer or not. Anyway, some lyrics are out of control as well. <clears throat> some songs sound more like a Valentine love song. Some words are inappropriate. Some are embarrassing. Here's some examples. You are my desire. No one else will do because no one else could take your place to feel the warmth of your embrace. That's Kelly Carpenter and Draw Me Close. Or, I want to sit at your feet, lay back against you and breathe. Feel your heartbeat. This love is so deep, it's more than I can stand. Carl Job, the more I seek you. Or, I want to look at the face of the one that I love, long to stay in your presence. It's where I belong. Oh, it's where I belong with you, my love. Kim Walker, Jesus Culture. This is theoeroticism, or romance to God, and is inappropriate. Who sings in the secret quiet hour, I want to touch your face and know you more? In church. Some songs today represent outrageous theology as well. The popular song, Reckless Love. I don't know any of these songs. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, the popular song, <coughs> Reckless Love, has 86 million listens on YouTube. But is God's love reckless? God's actions were intentional and well-planned when he sent his son to the cross. He knew us before the foundations of the world. How sound are some of the producers of today's music, such as Hillsong, Jesus Culture, Bethel Music, music produced by the New Apostolic Reformation. The lyrics may promote troubling theology, including the prosperity gospel and Kingdom Now, Dominion Theology. What good can come from an outfit that produces Naked Cowboy, a Hillsong production in New York? Do some of today's music work people up almost to an altered stance of unconsciousness with repetitive words? Why must the choruses be sung two dozen times, inducing a trance-like look on the faces of many? How worshipful is the music when earplugs are distributed as you enter the sanctuary? I've never been to that church. What if the volume is above 80 decibels? Do you know that is hazardous to your health? But it works. The church is vanishing in Australia, except for Hillsong, with 40,000 attendees. Maybe the end justifies the means. We are to come before his presence with singing, Psalm 102, but with just any style of music, does anything go? Is the music reflecting the majesty of God or just making us feel good? Is the music focusing on the truth of Scripture? Could the great end time falling away predicted in the Bible be hitting the, hitting the music industry as well as some of our pulpits? Or are the critics of today's music being overly critical and legalistic? Too often today, anything goes if it works. Hundreds will unsubscribe from these emails. 
and more may stop listening to Understanding the Times Radio, their radio ministry, as a result of this discussion. We counted the cost. We just find it troubling that some seem to be worshiping worship. Holiness should affect every area of our life. Ephesians 4, 17 through 32. Discipline produces holiness. And then verse 12 as we close. Now no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. It's no fun to be disciplined. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. See, it's profitable because it ultimately will produce peace and righteousness in our life. Isaiah 32, 17, the work of righteousness shall be peace. The effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever in our heart. You want peace? You want righteousness? You want assurance? You need to live a godly life. And God's discipline process is to get us to that point of a righteous life, profitable for us, that we can have peace in this world. Philippians 4. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing, anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Discipline is a vital occurrence in the life of a believer. And if you're a child of God, you will be disciplined. It sets you apart as God's child. Don't let it get past the conviction stage. When you have done something wrong, confess it, 1 John 1, 9. That God doesn't have to chastise you. Because the longer you go in that sin and rebellion, the harder your heart becomes and you become rebellious against your heavenly father. And the, the discipline will get more severe and more severe, even to death if you get that deep into sin. Rejoice in discipline and enjoy it for a season, if you will. It's not joyous, but bear with it. It'll, it'll, it's for your benefit. It's part of our life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessing and goodness to us, and all of us are disciplined. Every child of God, without exception. At some time, we will think a bad thought, we'll do a wrong action, uh, something. And we'll know we're wrong. We'll be convicted of it by the indwelling Holy Spirit. We need to confess it and restore that fellowship and not let it get any worse. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your care for us, Father. Bless our food. Bless our fellowship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson. Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. 
if you have questions about the study that you just listened to, or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919-275-4477. Shalom.